Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. My name is Bryant. I'm a pastor here at Hope Brooklyn, and Happy New Year. It is so good to have all of you back here with us. Um, I know it's only been two Sundays, but because, I guess, carried over to the new year. It feels like it's been a lifetime. Um, and as you, as you have come in, you might have seen some uh, rows um, taped off. Um, I love it that we're all kind of a little bit cozier. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the advantages of actually being a bit of a smaller church. Um, I love being able to sing together and hearing all the voices collectively as we worship and to be able to share and just kind of be in a cozy space all together. And so um, as, we're, as we're starting off the new year, um, we're starting a ser- new series called Mysteries of the Kingdom. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking a couple of parables. And man, this was tough. As Janelle and I were prepping this series together, um, just selecting four parables to pick, to kind of highlight and to emphasize that what what we're going to focus on and our direction, um, it was challenging. But um, these next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking the mysteries of the kingdom. Um, What are these parables? Why does Jesus teach in parables? And what, how do these parables have implications today for us on how we see the world and how we see each other? And so with that, let me just open up in prayer for us once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for your word, your truth, um, and thank you for community. God, as we spend this time together, um, and this, as we have journeyed across, as Janice said, through trains, bus, cars, walking, um, that we're gathered in this space to be able to grow together, to learn and to experience your grace and your goodness. So Father, be with us in the word, be with us in truth, and may you speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And so um, today, as I was driving over and just waiting at a red light, um, I have finally recognized and affirmed that the holiday season is over. Um, because um, as I was standing at the red light, I saw this man walk up to his apartment door, take the wreath right off his door, walk over to the city trash can, scrunch it up, fold it, and just dump it. Like, he was like, done. <laughs> holiday season's over. Um, and I'm like, all right, we're turning a new leaf, okay? Um, all the Christmas trees, I mean, I've, we saw Christmas trees on the sidewalk literally the day after Christmas. Um, people were like, enough of this, I want my space and my apartment back. Um, and so um, I was less of a Grinch this year because it was Ellie's first Christmas, so I was like, all right, I gotta spread the joy, I guess. I don't know, <laughs> be more jolly. Um, so, you know, I was kind of more into the Christmas spirit. Um, we got an actual Christmas tree this time and all that stuff, but I was like, man, if there's any other sign in this city that the holiday season is over, right? The kindness, the extra compassion, it feels like it's just, whoosh, just tanked. Um, but with all that said, um, I hope, I hope that just because the Christmas story of Advent is over, that we as a church and believers don't lose sight of the kingdom of God. Because that's what Jesus was really doing. As he was being born on Christmas Day, he was ushering in this new kingdom, And this kingdom is important because it gives us a lens to be able to see a glimpse of what his intention is, a glimpse of what the the world that he has designed and intended it for it to be, a world of shalom and peace, a world where Jesus thrives and his grace and love is at the center of it all. And so we see these through multiple parables, and um, Jesus teaches through these parables, and the best way I kind of captured is it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, The way these parables work is that Jesus will give a teaching and he'll cast alongside, um, literally means kind of cast along um, these stories to help illustrate these 
I hope that is not a sign of what's happening downstairs. <laughs> or my mic's dirtier tape. Um, but <laughs> talk about parables. No, um, just, there's a parable for what it means to kind of show a heavenly picture of the kingdom of God. And most of these parables begin with Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so it kind of gives us a taste of what Jesus designed the world to be, what God, how God designed the world to be. And the, the unique thing about parables and the tough thing I had about parables was that not everyone gets it. Not everyone gets it. And I think we live in a day and a culture where not everyone understands what we're trying to say. Um, we could say a statement and everyone could have a different lens, worldview, and perspective on how to receive that message. Um, I mean, just go on social media. Someone posts one Instagram comment, it could be the most harmless thing, and there's like 40 comments underneath, how could you say that, right? And there's all these different avenues of how it's interpreted. And so when Jesus teaches in these parables, he understands that some will know right away. Some, this will unlock the mysteries of the kingdom, but for some, it might actually be offensive. Because the, these parables disrupt our worldview. Because the kingdom of God doesn't make sense in our economy. And we're going to see that in this text coming in Luke 7. The kingdom of God doesn't make sense in our workplace. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't fit in. And so Jesus understood this. And there's a um, Catholic theologian, Barbara Reed. And she wrote a great book called Parables for Preachers. Um, but in the book she says, By shattering the structures of our accepted world, Parables remove our, remove our defenses and make us vulnerable to God. It, 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 it reveals the surface, the inner surface of our hearts. It reveals the things that we hold so dearly to. It reveals the things that we have built as our kingdom. And then it presents God's kingdom. And in Luke 7, um, and man, I had a really tough time with this... <laughs> passage Luke 7, 36 to 50, because there's so much going on here. And I'm going to do my best to try to unpack as much as I can while staying on course. Um, but please just bear with me. In Luke 7, 36 to 50, the setting opens up. says, one of the, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And so to kind of help us in context, um, it's a new year, so we have pictures now. Um, this is kind of the scene for the dinner party. Because I know it's hard for us to imagine, like, you know, in our, in our context of dinner tables, of dining tables, that this woman is kind of crawling under the table washing Jesus' feet. But it wasn't like that. Now, most dinners that occurred in homes, um, most of them happened outside, but some of them ha ha happened in the homes. People would just be laying down, their feet extended outwards, and dining. And it's not, actually not uncommon that there will be guests surrounding that dinner meal. I know it's, it's a weird dinner party, right? Um, people watching you eat. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't uncommon that there was a crowd gathered. Um, you don't see it in this depiction, but this is how it looked like. And as Jesus is reclining and eating, this woman walks in, takes her alabaster jar of perfume, starts weeping and washing his feet with her tears and then with her hair and then pouring the perfume on them. And so this is obviously a very um, wild dinner party. 
Um, rest assured, table leaders, hopefully this won't, ha I don't know, maybe it'll happen, I don't know, but um, this event is happening. So Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over, and that's actually very important to notice because the invitation was given by a Pharisee. Simon was interesting. He's like, I want to know who this Jesus, the teacher, is. I want to know who this man is that's proclaiming to be God. I just want to, I just want to eat with him. The invitation was sent out. And imagine this Simon, you're just enjoying your meal, and then this woman kind of comes in as a guest, and she puts on this whole show. Kind of ruins the intention and the vibe and, and what this Pharisee wanted to accomplish at this dinner. And I can't say exactly what the questions Simon had for Jesus because it's not in the text. But there was an invitation by the Pharisee. And in this passage, we're going to see some unique responses. We see the woman's response, the sinful woman. And as recognized as a sinful woman, she was probably someone that had a reputation in town as a prostitute. She came in, and as she enters into the dinner, she, she begins to just weep and to wash Jesus' feet. She then lets her hair down, which culturally was not accepted at the time, and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she pours out this alabaster jar. Um, it's not clear, but the depiction of an alabaster jar can come in a small jar, or it was a vial around the neck, a perfume. For a woman like her, this was probably her entire net worth. It was her entire equity. It's all she had. It was her insurance plan. She had no savings. She had no you know, plan for when things went south. There was no rainy day fund. This was it. This alabaster jar was all that she has earned, she's worked for, and she was able to have. And she pours this out at the feet of Jesus. And so this dinner party for Simon has gone completely south. Uh, and then now we get to see Simon's reaction in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Simon is questioning Jesus' identity and his calling. If he truly was a prophet, he would know who is doing this. Simon was disgusted by this woman's act. He was revolted by her. He despised her because she was everything he taught not to be. As a religious leader, she represented all the signs and symptoms of someone that's living a parallel life to his. And here she is in his home, defiling his home and defiling the prophets. Simon was curious, but here immediately as he's witnessing this, he doesn't even begin to question, why is she doing this? He begins to question Jesus' authority and identity. Right away, he says, if he, if he was a prophet, he would know. Simon, he looks at Jesus and he realizes that his, his presuppositions were correct. His, his confirmation bias was there. It's confirmed. And in one moment... It all twists for Simon. He begins to, you could clearly see that he questions his identity as a prophet. And I love verse 40. We see Jesus' response. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And I'm like, man, that's, 
you know it's not going to go well for Simon. Simon, I have something to tell you. And in verse 41, we see this parable, a very short parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii at the time was about a day's wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. But which of them will love him more? I love that line. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Simon is disturbed by this answer. He realizes what's going on. And in verse 42, this line is crucial for us. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. It didn't matter what the amount was. It didn't, amount, it didn't matter how much debt has been built up over time and in the course of a life. Jesus is trying to remind Simon that no matter how small or large a debt is, at the end of the day, no one can pay this. No one. And then Jesus in 44 says, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Jesus is essentially looking at Simon and says, you haven't even done the, the, the basic, basic needs of hospitality. This is a culture where this was just a, any guest would receive this kind of treatment. But Jesus did not receive that when he entered into the home of Simon. And I promise you our table hosts are very hospitable, all right? So um, don't be too concerned about that. But here Simon, he's not concerned of any of this. He's like, just come, come, come. I, you know, I, I, he was curious. He just wanted him to teach him. Because as the Pharisees recognized Jesus, he was teacher, prophet, but not savior. And then Jesus says, <laughs> one of the most outlandish things at this dinner so far. I mean, a lot of crazy things have happened, but Jesus is interesting. Simon, watch this. Looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. This, see, this is a wild claim. For us, it might be, a, yeah, obvious. That's who Jesus is. But the fact that Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven, you see his reactions. And you see the guests' reactions in the house. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? In verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Jesus was a phenomenal guest. If, you want, if you're in for an evening of surprises and for your worldview and your life to be disturbed and disrupted, this is what Jesus does. We come in thinking that we're going to have a nice, quiet dinner with Jesus, just be able to ask some questions. We have all these things that we're wondering about. But Jesus, with this event, turns this dinner party upside down. These guests began to ask him and say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus made sure that his identity wasn't just as a prophet or teacher, but as savior. 
It's like Simon, I want, he's essentially showing Simon. Because see, Simon is, you know, we always think of Simon the Pharisee as this evil person in the story. No, it's his home. (laughs) He invited Jesus. The only problem is the response that Simon had is dramatically different than the woman. See, the way the parables work, as Jesus taught this parable, he taught, he showed and revealed a beautiful truth to the sinful woman. She was able to see the kingdom by this parable. By this parable of this forgiven debt, she, was, she saw the kingdom from where she was. But unfortunately, it disrupted Simon's worldview, and he couldn't see. When we listen to parables, when we see parables, it generates a response. It's either going to respond, our response is either going to be a view of the kingdom of God and all of its beauty and glory and grace, or it's going to shatter all that we hold dear. It's going to be the stone that goes into the glass building. The kingdom of God and the parables that Jesus presents It teaches us about forgiveness and grace. And we see this parable of debt, that neither one of them had enough to pay the debt. And we give so much attention to the type of debt that is owed. We, we, we look at people and we can't help but to judge and to critique. That person's evil. That person's bad. We, we have a label of the moral scale of this is good and anything beneath this is not ethical. We set the moral high ground. We set the moral good. And no wonder it's so difficult for us to be able to forgive and to see and to, and, and to criticize debt by its quality and not by the value. The unfortunate reality is that someone must pay the debt. It doesn't just magically disappear. I always hope and pray that school loans just magically disappear one day. If I don't look at it enough, maybe it'll just be gone. I open up the app, it's zero. <laughs> But the reality is, in any type and form of debt, something and someone must pay for it. And as Jesus teaches his parable, he's allowing Simon to realize it doesn't matter how good of a life that you lived or how bad of a life that you lived. I welcome sinners, I eat with sinners, and I forgive sinners. A pastor once um, said, I I remember during the sermon, said that, the scandal of grace is not that Jesus loves good people and bad people. The scandal of grace is that God loves sinners, period. There is no good and bad. But the scandal of grace is that when Jesus sees humanity, he, sees it, he, he recognizes the sinful and broken nature of who we are. That no matter how many good deeds we have accumulated in this world, or no matter how many bad deeds we have built up, and he just sees a fraction of broken world. And in that place, in that place, Jesus says, I'll absorb all of that debt. Because no one in this world will ever be able to fully, fully comprehend and meet the payment. The richness of forgiveness that Jesus teaches here, he points to the sinful woman and he says, Simon, don't you see that her love and the way that she has lavished so many tears and her, her jar, her alabaster jar and the perfume at my feet. It's a response to the debt that has been forgiven. 
It's hard for us to capture the beauty of grace and live in the power of grace when we don't recognize the debt that we're in. If we're living a life like Simon who feels like as long as I continue on with my religious responsibilities, it's just going to chip away. But it takes someone like the sinful woman to help us to realize that the true debt that is forgiven, the, the, the incredible amount that has been built up, only can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Peter Kreeth, um, he's a philosophy professor and a, um, ca- a Catholic priest. In one of his books on suffering, he wrote, Our only qualification for God's grace is our emptiness, not our fullness. Our undeservingness, not our deservingness. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, but the sinners. Not the, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. In Mark two seventeen. And then on infinitely lower level, this book is for empty hearts, not full ones. If we are coming into the space, if we're entering into the dinner table as Simon, just seeking intellectual truth and be able to make sense of. Christianity to make sense and reason of all this theology, which is important, right? I'm not saying just, just go with your emotions. No, it's important. I mean, I went to school for this too. <laughs> it's important. But the priority that Simon had was I just want to make, this, I want to make sense of all this. I want to make sense of Jesus. But here's the hard truth. We could never make sense of grace because it's so absurd and so scandalous and so ridiculous that at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense that someone like Jesus would take the place of sinners and to receive the punishment that was not his. Um, I, I, I always go down these rabbit holes on like videos and, and short clips, um, and I went down this rabbit hole on um, watching people forgiving others in the courtroom. And even as a Christian, as a pastor, it doesn't make sense for me. When I see a father standing in the courtroom looking at the face of someone that murdered his daughter and saying, you're making it very difficult, but I forgive you. I'm like, how? Why? You cannot make sense of that. You cannot make any reason or like there's, there's no formula that says that is how it should end. There's no formula that says that is the result of such tragedy and pain and loss. Our world's economy says, no, show anger, show justice, get revenge. Make it right. But Jesus says, no, I will make it right, but just not your way. I will make it right through the ways of the kingdom. I'll make it right by, by myself standing in the place of all that evil, brokenness, all those failures, all those shortcomings, all those fears. I'll absorb it all. Martin Luther says, that, this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace unto sinners. Wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us in it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. And I'm just beginning to try to imagine myself 
in that place of that woman at that, at that dinner. The audacity and the boldness she had to enter into that space. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just weird to go to a place uninvited. I mean, I don't know, if maybe I'm not judging anyone, but some of you might just be bold. Like, I'm just going to be there. Um, but it's, it's weird to just show up at a place without an invitation. Right? And sometimes we've been in events where we're like, I definitely do not belong here. Right? I am so out of my class. I am so out of my social circle. I don't know what I'm doing here. And yet this woman just enters in, sees the feet of Jesus, and just begins to lavish her entire life at his feet. It's because she recognizes, as Martin Luther said here, this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace unto sinners. That grace has so much wealth and power in her life. So much more she sees the value in it than Simon does. That she took her entire insurance plan, all that she had, and saying, I don't even need this. I don't need that type of security. I don't need that type of hold. I surrender it all. And Jesus, in response, lets her know that her sins are forgiven, not because of her love, but because of her faith. He reminds her that she is forgiven. And I love the last line that Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. And if you're walking out of this meal, who had the most to gain? This woman. She came in with nothing. She came in with a reputation that was not, you know, of any worth to anybody in that room. She was a nobody in that room. And then yet she comes in and she walks out with the salvation and faith and peace that Jesus gives to her. The economy of grace is scandalous because it's insulting for those who have worked so hard to gain righteous credit. Although we may not physically carve it out for ourselves, but in the, in the back of our heads, all the things, all the sermons that we sat through, all the worship songs that we sang, all the ways that we have volunteered and participated in Christianity, participated with Jesus, it's, it's, it's a bit insulting when somebody comes in the last minute, scoops in, and is like, you receive it as well. That economy doesn't make sense. It's like that person in the group project that just comes in the last second, just puts their name on, and it gets all the credit. Right? <laughs> Sorry, I was that person. Um, <laughs> but we realized this, and we realized, man, the beauty of God's grace, at the end of the day, will never fully make sense to us. But for those that have received it, it is the greatest news ever. It is the news of freedom. It is the news of new life. It is the news of boldness. Like this woman walking out of that dinner or that, that meal, she has gained a whole new life in the place of hers. She has gained the audacity to walk into a room where, and Tim Keller one of the things I love that he said, he always said early on, is that sin levels the playing field. 
It doesn't matter who we are coming into the space. It doesn't matter what our bank accounts say. It doesn't matter how big our social circles are. It doesn't matter how much charisma we have, how much of an introvert, extrovert. It doesn't matter how many books you have read here over anybody else. Right? It doesn't matter how many podcasts you've listened to. It doesn't matter who you are in your workplace, your status, and your family. Here in this place, sin levels the playing field. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about grace. That we can come in in a community, enter into a community not, that is not designated by the status of the world, but that is seen through the kingdom of God. That we are loved. We hold dignity and value because we're created in the image of God. That we hold value because it's Jesus who's paid the price and that he has covered us with his inheritance and his grace and his riches. You know, it was growing up in an immigrant church, it was so frustrating um, that my pastor had to make me, he, he, he insisted that I wore a suit every Sunday as a youth pastor. Okay, if you want to talk about cultural relevance, it was like a, a full-blown barrier before I even spoke my first word. And I never understood that. <laughs> um, and over time, as I, be, I, I mean, I'm still, I still don't get it, but over time, I kind of understood a little bit more. A lot of these people, including my mom, that went into the church space, they were coming from jobs and positions that were like just barely making ends meet. They're coming from a place where they weren't seen. They're coming from a place that they were probably disrespected. I recall sitting at the nail salon watching my mom work, and because I understood English, hearing what all these people were saying about my mom, thinking that she wouldn't understand. All these things. But once they came into church and the songs and the hymns began to sing, it was like the glory of God was upon every single person. It didn't matter. Everyone knew in that place that they were receiving this grace that we didn't deserve. And because of that, we were able to inherit a richness, the richness of grace that was so profound, so life-changing. You know, I would see my mom weep in joy. I would see other, other parents singing with just such lament and angst, but yet finding hope. That formula doesn't make sense. You're barely paying rent. You're barely having food at the table, but you're finding the, the most crisp dollar bill to be able to put into the offering plate, to give everything that this woman did. And my question and my challenge today as um, I invite the communion ushers and the worship team up is as we hear this parable, how does it affect us today? How do we see the kingdom today? And the, the best way I could try to imagine it is if Jesus stood in this room today or if Jesus came into this room, sat in the back, would we invite him to dinner to say, hey, I have 101 questions for you to figure out? I, this doesn't make sense. In the, why, why, why do we have so many denominations? Okay. Who is right? right? Which way is the true way? of the, like, I, I, Honestly, I have questions too. And I had to wrestle with this. Or, or, will we fall to the feet of Jesus in worship and wonder? Will we just be marveled by his presence being in this place. And like this woman that came in, just lavished all that we have at his feet. I wrestle with this. I don't have the answer. I mean, I know what the answer should be. But I'm thinking like, man, if a brilliance, you know, if Jesus came in and all of his brilliance and all the answers and all his truth and knowledge, I need to figure things out. 
I need to know why there's suffering. I need to know why there's death. I need to know why there's war and brokenness. I need to know why, there, why, why, why are there miscarriages. I need to know why there's all this pain in this world. Like, give me answers, Jesus. Why is this denomination at odds of this denomination? Why is this theologian at odds of this theologian? No. But I know, I look at this passage and I see this woman who has received this tremendous grace because of the debt that she owed. Just falling to the feet of Jesus. Worshipping of all of her body, soul, and mind. What would our response be? Would we be like Simon? Look at this foolish woman. Look at what she's doing. Jesus, do you not know who she is? Why are you spending time with her? He's essentially saying, you should be spending time with me. This is my house. This is my meal. This is my table. And so my challenge for us, the second challenge is, how do we set our tables? Who is sitting at our tables? Who is in our social circles? Who are we inviting to the dinner table? Because if we're inviting Jesus, we are bringing the group of sinful women with him. If we are inviting Jesus' presence into our homes, into our rooms, into our lives, just be prepared for the people that will follow Jesus. Because they will be coming too. There will be many plus ones. (laughs) And that's what my dream for Hope Brooklyn is. You know, a confession for me is that I spend so much time trying to retain. It's like, oh, man, what if this person leaves? What if that person leaves? <laughs> but I think Jesus has just given me the, the grace and compassion in my heart to just be like, it's okay. Just invite me. Just invite me into this house. And people like this will come. If the presence of Jesus truly rests at Hope Brooklyn, open these doors let the sinful come in. Let those with broken lives enter into this place. Let, those, let the marginalized feel at home and have boldness here. Let those who are sitting on the outside being rejected and despised come in here and find community and affirmation in the presence of Jesus. Open those doors. Let Jesus come. Open up our tables. Let Jesus come. I want to see baptisms happening on, on a weekly basis because people have discovered this richness of grace through the broken body of Jesus. Let this place be disrupted and disoriented because Jesus is here. Nowhere Jesus went, there was, there was never order. <laughs> Everywhere he went, there was a crowd, there was chaos, there was people murmuring. On his way to the cross, he tore a whole city apart. It's because when the kingdom of God comes, everything gets turned upside down. And, ha- and look, just look at our lives. If there's too much calmness and peace, we need to ask ourselves, has Jesus and his kingdom entered into our hearts? And with that, we take communion every Sunday. We take two elements which represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the cup, the covenant of Jesus, the blood that was poured out for us. And the same way as this woman poured out the alabaster jar, her, essentially her life savings, Jesus has poured himself out for us so that the debt that we could never pay has been paid fully. Not a cent missing, not a moment of brokenness left out, but all of it 
left on the cross that we could freely receive by faith. And as we receive, Jesus gives us these words, go in peace, go in wholeness. So that's what grace does. It makes things whole according to his kingdom. And so if you feel prepared and ready, um, Liz and Brandon on each side, come up, receive the bread and the cup. If you have not received Jesus today as the one that's paid our debt, it's okay not to receive these elements. But I ask us, like where you're sitting right now, maybe just in prayer and meditation, just ask Jesus to come in. Allow him to just disorient our souls a little bit. And then we'll sing a song and close out our service together.